In a corner of northeastern England, there is a giant medieval castle, Castle Annick. With its stone towers, giant arched gateways, and thin spindly windows, it looks a lot like Hogwarts. In fact, it is Hogwarts. The first two Harry Potter movies were filmed at this castle. And like many old English castles, Annick is surrounded by these lush ornamental gardens. But one of these gardens is unlike the others. It's a painted black with a skull and crossbones and a warning sign, uh, these plants can't kill. Yeah. These plants, they're all poisonous. And if that's not enough to put visitors on edge. There's a, quite a clang when you shut the gates behind them, so that kind of scares them again. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. And today, we're taking you to the Anik Poison Garden, a place where stopping and smelling the flowers could actually kill you. That's after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm LeVar Burton, and I read my favorite short stories every week on my podcast, LeVar Burton Reads. This season, that includes stories by Justin C. Key, Luis Alberto Urea, and Percival Everett. It's kind of like a book club, except you don't have to do the reading. I do. Listen to LeVar Burton Reads wherever you get your podcasts on. Don't forget to follow the show so you'll never miss an episode. The rules are no touching the plants, no tasting the plants, no picking any plants to take home with them, and no smelling. This is John Knox. He's the lead guide at the Anik Poison Garden. And the garden can only be visited with a guide. Being a guide there means that John has to enforce the garden's rules. And the rules aren't there just to scare visiting school kids into piping down and listening. You can come across some very real danger while winding your way through the Poison Garden's flame-shaped flower beds, especially when the flowers are in bloom. Take to Torah or the angel's trumpet. It's got this big yellow and white trumpet-shaped flower. It's a perfect shape for sticking your nose in. But if you want to stick your head in one of the big trumpet-shaped flowers and big sniff, you'd be hallucinating for about three or four days afterwards, and it's not good hallucinations. Tends to be quite scary stuff coming for you, and because it's a delirium type of hallucination, you're not sure whether it's real or it's not real. Then there's the black false hellebore, which has these really beautiful dark purple flowers with little gold flecks on them. But I wouldn't get too close. 
Their pollen can trigger a real sneezing fit. That'll last for about 15, 20 minutes, and about one in five people can't take that without getting a nosebleed. And there's actually a, a steroid in there which works as an anticoagulant. So once you start to get the nosebleed, it doesn't stop. If you don't get it cauterized, you can bleed to death. You're going to want to steer clear of sniffing that one. Then there's the plant called henbane. It smells like a dead mouse, and when we've got a lot of it on a hot, still day, uh, it, first of all, it makes your tongue go to sleep, so your tongue just kind of sits in the bottom of your mouth. That lasts for about 30 seconds, and if you don't get into fresh air, uh, then you'll, you'll start feeling lightheaded and pass out. John can speak from personal experience on this one. Because we stand closest to the plants, uh, I've had it so my tongue started to go to sleep, and you've got to try and push your group of 20 people far enough away so it's not going to affect them without being able to speak for about 60 to to 120 seconds until you start breathing in fresh air. But we all know the thing about rules. If you tell people not to touch something, they really want to touch it. And if you tell them not to smell something, they really want to smell it. So there's another thing that you see happening in the garden. We do get a lot of fainters through the summer holidays. We probably average about one a day when it's hot. Fainters, as in people passing out. Though John insists that it's mostly, mostly psychosomatic. It's not the plants that's doing it. It's They think they get a smell of a certain plant. And, oh, that must be really, really powerful because I can smell it. They haven't had breakfast and they tend to be tall and skinny for some reason. And by the time we get down to the bottom part of the garden where there's quite a lot of smells... The air's very still and it's very hot. It just seems to hype them up that little bit too much and down they go. In a way, that's the very reason people visit. The danger or perceived sense of danger that draws people into the poison garden. Hearing that people faint within its walls just adds to the allure. And John says that's true for the stories about the plants and their deadly poisons as well. The garden tour is sprinkled with tales about how killers have used these natural poisons, like the famed British serial killer known as the teacup poisoner, who sprinkled extract from deadly nightshade into his victim's tea, or the California woman who offed her husband using oleander leaves. John says the gnarlier the tale, the better. The more gory stuff is, the more fun people have with it. We've had just so many kids this year that are coming in, um, seeing the plants, hearing the stories, And then immediately they're running to tell the parents or their brother and sister this horrific story that they've just been told from one of the guides. And it's like they've got this new bit of knowledge, they have to spread it around. Which is pretty much the philosophy behind why the Poison Garden was created in the first place. It makes a certain amount of sense that the Hogwarts grounds would have a Poison Garden and that it was created by a duchess. But... What's surprising is that this isn't some medieval relic or Victorian oddity. The Poison Garden saw its first blooms in 2005. It's the brainchild of Jane Percy, also known as the Duchess of Northumberland. Though she never really expected to find herself in that position. Until the mid-1990s, she and her husband Ralph lived a relatively normal life in a farmhouse in the British countryside. But then, Ralph's older brother died suddenly when he was in his early 40s. And Ralph and Jane found themselves the new Duke and Duchess of Northumberland and in charge of Annick Castle. It 
was a weird adjustment. And Jane's husband suggested that she work on sprucing up the castle grounds and getting to know the place. But the thing about Lady Jane Percy... She's a little bit unusual anyway. Um, I hope that doesn't come across as rude. The Duchess didn't want to do the usual stuffy English rose garden thing. She wanted to make a tourist destination, more Las Vegas or Euro Disney than Downton Abbey. So on Annick Garden Grounds, she installed a giant treehouse, a mini golf course, and as a martial arts enthusiast, she even hosted MMA fights there. While searching for inspiration for her garden, the Duchess visited places like Italy's historic botanical gardens, where in medieval times, medicinal plants were guarded carefully by monks. Other places she'd been to that had physics gardens where they were medicinal, and the, the tour she'd seen with kids on, the kids were basically bored, being told, this cures you this, this cures you the other. Whereas when the kids were told the gory stories of this plant's going to kill you, and this is how it's going to kill you, and there's going to be blood, and there's going to be guts, the kids were fascinated. So she thought, we'll have some of that. After all, the plants that can heal you can often also do some pretty terrible stuff. John says one of his favorite stories to tell is about a little yellow flower that looks like a buttercup called the greater celandine. Break the stem, and you've got a pretty potent sap. So if you had a wart on your, see your finger, you put just two drops of the sap on top of it, you'd leave it for 20 minutes, and you'd be in absolute agony. Didn't matter how tough you were, you'd be in tears. You rinse it off after the 20 minutes, and you'll have a blister there for a couple of days. And when the blister drops off, fresh skin underneath and no wart. So that's fantastic. But in the Middle Ages, they used exactly the same procedure to treat hemorrhoids. So you can imagine how long that 20 minutes was. Elsewhere in the garden, protected by these gothic-looking curved cages, there's also a number of plants that can be used to make illicit drugs. The garden's got opium poppies, it's got cannabis plants, and it's got tobacco. They've had to get special permission from the UK government to grow those, and they're used as part of a drug awareness program with local schools. But those examples aside, John says there's one thing that always seems to surprise visitors about the garden. Yeah, probably the most common thing we hear is when people are walking around is, I've got that plant, I've got that plant. Well, that plant can't be poisonous, I've got that in my garden. Oleander, foxglove, rhododendron. Many of the prettiest ornamental plants can really mess with your insides. And learning that changes the way people think about their own little backyard plots. But the, there's a lot more people going home uh, with gardening gloves than coming with gardening gloves. John says after working in the poison garden, he started to look at plants in a new way, too. I'm a, I'm a lot less veggie than I used to be. I'm, I eat a lot less plant food than I, than I used to. I'm a lot more of a meat eater now. Tickets are required for entry to the Annick Gardens, uh, which includes the Poison Garden. Information about booking can be found on their website. And special thanks to John Knox for telling us the story of the incredible Annick Poison Garden. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was produced by Amanda McGowan. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, 
Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, McKenna Smith, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore, Peter Clowney, Annie Eubank, Guinevere Govea. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids, what's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.